listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful hymn. So many Christmas hymns tend to be uh, some of the most theologically rich, and uh, that is definitely one of them. Um, I want to turn your attention to Genesis 3 this morning. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time. We'll take a look at Romans 8 as well. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really delighted to open God's word with you this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we uh, are gathered by your word. We're gathered to hear from your word. We want to not only know your word, but to know you personally by it. And so we ask this morning, that, um, that in all sincerity and uh, as commissioned by God and in your sight, that I would speak in Christ in a way that edifies his saints, his church, his sheep. Lord, bless us this morning. We thank you again for this time to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, I want to look at, Rome, at, at Genesis 3. You may recognize that as the chapter in the Bible where things take a decidedly negative turn. Uh, why are we talking about the fall here a few Sundays before Christmas? Uh, that may be on your mind. I don't want to necessarily convince you of the realities of the fall, though. I don't want to convince you that we live in a cursed and fallen world. I imagine if you've spent any amount of time just glancing at the news over the last week or so or month or year, you're familiar enough with the fallenness of the world. Maybe you've looked in the deep, dark recesses of your own heart and you know how dim things can be at times. My purpose this morning as we look at Genesis 3 is rather to consider how and why the curse and the fall happened. Because I think that that holds the key for what we are to do if we are to have any hope beyond the curse. We sang it this morning in Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. How is it possible that God's people can say that? How can we sing that joyfully as well? That's why I want to look at Genesis 3. We'll also spend some time in Romans chapter 8, but first let's start with Genesis 3. I'm going to read a little bit, make some comments along the way. I've got really a few small points, but it's really all building to one big idea. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and I think it's important to note that the woman does not have a name here. She has no name. We know her to be Eve, but she doesn't have a name yet. Okay, that's, that's significant. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What's interesting in Eve's, well, the woman's response to the serpent is that she's speaking a lot of true things about what the Lord had said, but among the things that she attributes to God, he never actually said they couldn't touch the tree. And you can look back and see what God's command to Adam originally was. He says nothing about touching the tree. Eve has, has already started to listen to the serpent and even now, we see some unraveling going on in terms of how the first man and woman 
perceive the words of God. Already there is a mischaracterization of what God actually said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The only thing I want to note here is that Adam is standing right there with the woman as she falls into temptation and sin. Her failure, her downfall here is as much, if not more so, his own downfall and failure. This is a group project that they've worked on together. Uh, but Adam is very much to blame. And what was, what was Adam's fault in this? Well, certainly he's standing next to her and says nothing. But maybe even more pointedly, we can say that Adam chooses or rather maybe forgets to let the woman know what it was that the Lord had said. Adam was the one who had been given this command from God. Eve had not even been made yet. And yet here in this moment, the one person who knows the revelation of God stands silent while the woman gives in to sin and then likewise he follows. That's important to to remember. So what what precipitated the fall? Let's let's continue to look here at at some of the outcomes of of how this worked out. Picking up again in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, the man, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, There there is so much packed into this story that we cannot get into. But I want to look more closely maybe at perhaps the, the reason behind the fall. What precipitated this whole thing? And I think it begins, we can point pretty clearly to the moment when Adam and Eve listened to the creature rather than the creator. That that was the first red flag. Adam and Eve had been put in the garden to rule over creation, uh, to to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. This, This is their calling, and yet here in this moment, everything is inverted, and the serpent speaks, and the people listen to him. There's a a major red flag there. Not only do they begin to question God's word, but, and this is not unrelated, they they begin to question God's very character. Even in the way that Eve speaks about God's command, you get the sense that even she perceives that maybe God is being withholding. That maybe God is being a bit extreme in what he is expecting of Adam and Eve. And so God's character is questioned, God's word is questioned, and what results is a subversion of the creation order. 
Everything is inverted. And, and this lends the primary importance now, not to the word of God, not to what God has said, but rather to the feelings and instincts of God's creatures. If you look at the way that Eve thinks of the fruit here in the garden, it says that she noticed that it was good to her eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise, that it was a delight. Eve began to use her own instincts, her own understanding of right and wrong, and she, she put God's word secondary to that. And of course, Adam standing right there, he goes right along with this. And isn't that the spirit of this age? I mean, we, we read this, we see this story, we're so familiar with this text, and we've heard this a thousand times, and sometimes we fail to transport it into the future where we recognize that this is really the same problem that all of us face, that this is really the story of all of humanity, is that we have a choice. Will we listen to the Lord? Will we follow his decrees and his wise counsel, or will we choose to follow our own instincts, our own so-called wisdom well, Adam and Eve made that choice long ago, and it's one that we've not been able to undo on our own ever since. Creation has been subverted, and this is really the story since then. Their unwillingness to submit to God's word, to his decree, to his revelation of himself, plunges the whole world into a nightmare. And, and I, want you to, I want you to see this. I want you to feel this. Again, this is a story that maybe has been sanitized by the number of times we've heard it, but there is a real tragedy. There is a grave sadness in this story. Do you feel that? The immediate impact, of course, is that as Adam and Eve, they go from merely fearing the Lord and in terms of having a sense of awe for him, a, an honor for him, a reverence of his presence, they go from fearing him to outright dreading him. They go from delighting to be in his presence to now feeling a sense of shame in his presence, and so they hide themselves. They even sow fig leaves that they might cover themselves before the Lord. God's presence for them is no longer a blessing. When God speaks, now Adam hides, and this is the story of all of history. This is your story. This is my story as well. When God speaks to us on our own, by our nature, we tend to run and hide. Because the Lord is to be dreaded, not turned to with joy. Creation order has been fractured. The relationship between God and man has been torn apart. The relationship between mankind and, and fellow man has been torn. The relationship between man and woman here so clearly has been torn apart. You see how Adam immediately blames Eve. And by extension blames the God who gave Eve to him. And not only is the, the creation order torn between mankind and, and between man and God, but it's also torn between man and the rest of creation. There, there, are, there are vast, far-reaching consequences to the fall. And then the Lord speaks again. Then the Lord speaks again. Pick up in chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, your translation like mine says bruise there, but you need to understand a head wound is a bit more severe than a heel wound. I think we all understand this maybe instinctively. Okay. All right. To the woman, verse 16, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then verse 17, to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. For out of it you were, uh, excuse me, uh, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust and to dust you shall return. Let's pause there. The Lord, he issues a curse. He, he curses each of the individuals involved in this story. Let's just examine them very quickly. And, and interestingly enough, when he speaks to the serpent, he perhaps reveals some of the, the most incredible uh, truth in this whole passage. In verses 14 and 15, the Lord makes very clear to the serpent, with Adam and Eve standing there, that, that from this moment on, there are really two lines. There are really two types of people. There's the child of the serpent, and then there's the child of the woman. Offspring there is a singular noun, not plural. It's meant to be thought of as like one person, but you can kind of extrapolate from there. You can think from there, okay, there's lines then that come from these two children, from these two lines. There's the child of the serpent, the child of the woman. In verse 16, the Lord pronounces a curse over Eve, and it's interesting that, that life and flourishing and co-laboring that are so often associated with women in Scripture are now actually the cause of pain. Likewise, in 17 through 19, creation and cultivation, these things that are so often associated with Adam and with man are now the cause of death. That, that is what we call a curse. And that's how the curse works. The intended order has been done away with. It has been subverted. It has been, it has been uh, taken aside and changed into something completely different. And its consequences, as you can imagine, are very far-reaching. Human flourishing is now at odds with a broken creation and, and vice versa. God speaks here one more time, like we've said, but now it, it is with judgment. Before it was a warning, before it was a decree, a command, do this and you will live. But now, now that time has passed and now the words of God bring judgment and Adam and the woman and the serpent all have to reckon with the judgment of God. This is what they have to wrestle with now. These are the words of God that they have to choose to accept and understand and believe or to reject and substitute with their own wisdom and, and worldliness. But God's revelation of judgment here is not entirely without hope. That's, that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. If you look again here, verse 15 he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In theological terms, we call this the, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. 
And it's so clear right here that the gospel is being put forward, maybe in a shadowy form, but nevertheless, the truth of the gospel is being declared. The Lord has this plan that he will, through Eve's son, through Eve's child, bring about some sort of redemption. That Eve's child will be the one to defeat the serpent. That even though the serpent might nip at his heels, Eve's child will crush the serpent's head. The Lord puts forward this very hopeful and unexpected message in the middle even of a curse that he is pronouncing over all of creation. And this time, Adam hears the Lord's words and he actually reinforces them. We didn't finish this chapter. I want you to look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's a sort of warrior angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, you may hear some of those words and think they've been cast out of the garden. That's pretty hopeless. That's pretty grim. And yes, that is a grim statement. But embedded in even these last few uh, paragraphs and sentences that we've read, we get a, such a clear glimpse of the hopefulness that the Lord has given, especially to Adam and to Eve. Like I said, the Lord pronounces this blessing, your, your child, Eve, will be the one to destroy and defeat the serpent. But you notice that, that Adam's response here is so telling, because it is at this moment that he determines Eve's name. Her name is Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now that's interesting, because at this point in time, there's Adam and there's Eve. There is nobody else. And yet Adam chooses to believe the words of the Lord in such a way that when he looks at the woman who, with his help, brought in the downfall of, in, of all of creation, he says, here, here is the source of life. This is where life will come from. It's not because Adam looks at Eve and sees something valuable in her, like, oh, clearly she's the one who will save us. No, she's the one who, again, with Adam's help, brought on our destruction. No, Adam's not looking to Eve for his hope. And Adam, at the same time, is not just raising his fist at the sky as in some sort of defiance against the curse. I'll just pretend like everything's fine, and you know what? You're going to be the source of life for all of creation, no matter what they say. That's, that's not what Adam's doing either. Here, Adam is doing what he should have done at the beginning, which is to hear the word, the revelation of God, believe it, and live in accordance with it. And that's what he does. That's how he sees Eve now. He's hearing the words of God, and he is seeing things differently. This is echoed, in a sense, in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, where it says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus, he, he is the child of Eve that was foretold in Genesis 
And he is the one by whom all of Eve's children will be redeemed if they are found to be in his line, if they're found to be in him. Not only does the Lord speak this incredible good news over his people, though, he, he also he, he accommodates their weakness, even in this moment. Now, they've sewed together uh, suits of fig leaves, not the most durable uh, material. It is not going to win you a lot of awards in major uh, fashion runways around the world. And the Lord recognizes this, and he says, no, I will provide something for you that is better. I'll provide something for you that's certainly more durable. But the Lord himself provides for them a covering. In his kindness, the Lord accommodates Adam and Eve's weakness. He knows that they are but dust. And, and he here cares for them. He takes the initiative to clothe them, to cover them, even in their nakedness and shame and sin. In fact, not only is this an accommodation, I, I think it's even kind of a, a, a use of their weakness that, that he might help them to anticipate an even greater covering that he will one day provide through Jesus. Verses 20 through, 22 through 24, the Lord sends them out of the garden. But even then, don't you see, even then, that the Lord is protecting them? To leave them in the garden would be eternal destruction. The implication is if they eat of the tree of life, then their con- their, their, the state of things now will be perpetual. And the Lord, in protecting them, actually sends them away from the garden is certainly the consequences for their sin, but it's also the Lord's means of grace and kindness to them. He, he even bars the doors with a flaming sword and an angel to make sure that they don't bring any further ruin on themselves in hope that Genesis 3.15 might be the thing that actually does the trick. And so the Lord protects them from final destruction. He gives them cause to be hopeful for life. And we see, even in this chapter that is so known for God's judgment, incredible kindness from the Lord. Now, over the serpent, he speaks a judgment of destruction. But over mankind, even mingled in with words of judgment, he has nothing but provision for them. He'll provide a child. He even provides for them clothing. The hope is that for all of creation, even though creation is now subject to this curse, God will one day bring full restoration for all the things that he has made in such a way that they actually overshadow, they, they, they outweigh in glory all that once was before Adam and Eve's fall. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. Picking up in verse 18. I love this. And when you read Romans, it, you can't help but, but think about it oftentimes as kind of a Kind of a commentary on Genesis. Uh, you start in, in chapter 1 and work your way through, especially the first 11 or 12 chapters, and you just see so much here where Paul, the apostle, is writing in reference to some very critical moments in the book of Genesis. And so as I read this from chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, I want you to listen out for just some of the echoes of things that we've already seen there in Genesis 3. I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You notice there in verse 18, this reference to glory. All of creation groans and waits for this glory that is yet to be revealed. Even our suffering at at one point is we're told, going to give way to glory. And I think it's really interesting that in verse 22, Paul mentions that all of creation groans as if it is in childbirth. Now, let's think back to Genesis 3, 16, where childbirth is the source of all kinds of pain, where childbirth is really just the reminder of the fall and the curse itself. Here, childbirth for Paul is a reminder that the Lord has something far greater in store for those who are his. That as he recreates, as he renews his creation, the broken, fallen things of this world are actually his tools for his purposes of bringing about his glory in the world and and the good, the joy of his people. Uh, This is a brutally honest assessment of the world that Paul gives here. I want you to sit in these words, uh, sufferings, futility, bondage to corruption, Uh, These things characterize all of creation. They characterize creation then in Genesis 3. They characterize creation now, today. I I don't think I really have to do any work to help you see that. He uses the word groaning in particular to describe what is taking place in all of creation. And not only in creation, but but in the hearts even of God's people, even of, of you and me. Groaning is the defining word. You know, this time every year, uh, some dictionary or other likes to put forward a word of the year, and it's supposed to be one of those words that everybody's been looking for, Googling, what does that mean, you know, that sort of thing. I don't remember what the word of the year this year was, but the word of the year every year should be groaning. It should always be that, because isn't isn't that the state of things? Don't you feel that sometimes? Sometimes you just can't help, but you just sort of exhale, and it's just a, it's just a groan. Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? How good are we at acknowledging our groaning? There are some pitfalls here when it comes to groaning. There's a whole spectrum, in fact. You, you can have on one end of the spectrum a sort of ignoring or minimizing this fallen world. Kind of shaking your fist at all of creation. In, in some sort of defiance, as though that really changes anything. You look at yourself, and you just minimize it. You, you look at your own sin, you just minimize, ah, well. You, you look at the world around you, and you just decide, I'm not going to acknowledge this, and if I don't talk about it or acknowledge this, then it, then it doesn't have any sort of hold on me or power over me or, or presence in this world. That's one end of the spectrum. That would be wrong. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's this tendency that some of us have to glory in our groaning, to glory in this fallen world, to kind of, it's a, it's a different kind of defiance. Oh, this doesn't matter. This is no big deal. This is part of what makes me who I am, you know? 
pain is weakness leaving the body. It's kind of that, that sort of glorifying even yourself in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a fallen world, your, your own sin or the sins of others. Another pitfall in this is that oftentimes, and I think this is, this is true of Christians in a unique way, is that at times we have too much shock for the fallenness of this world and, and not enough sadness when we see the fall's effects. And I get it. It can be really easy to read the news, watch TV, see what's going on in the lives around you and just kind of shake your head and disgust and disgrace. And This is unbelievable. Well, it, it shouldn't be, though. Genesis 3 makes this so clear that this, this is the state of things. Uh, and, and rather than turning a blind eye to the fallenness of this world, rather than ignoring the curse and its effects, we, we actually need to look more deeply into it. Not to revel in it, but to see beyond it, to see where our hope lies. The problem is that we can't solve the fall or overcome the curse by entrenching ourselves in worldly wisdom or retreating from the Lord just to rely on ourselves and our own judgment. Let me ask you, are, are, are you, are we, at this time of year, as often happens, are we taking stock of ourselves at the end of another year? Are we overwhelmed by the state of the world around us, or better yet, by the state of our own souls, thinking about the ways that we have failed to live up to whatever expectations, reasonable or not, that we may have had for ourselves? Are we despairing over our lives even, because they are filled with thorns and thistles when, when there should be joy instead of pain. We sometimes forget that the curse on Eve was, was one that turned her joy into one of pain. We forget even with Adam that the curse on him, that the ground would not work together with him to produce fruit, but would actually extract from him blood, sweat, and tears until one day he joins it as dust. We forget that, that his work was meant to be a joy. That work is not a result of the fall, it precedes it. And all these things, we can look at them and see thorns and thistles and, and be hopeless. But when we look at the roots of the fall, we find the pathway to hope, which is that God's ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ is our glorious hope for salvation and for all of creation's redemption. And it's right there, even as you're reading about curses and judgment and the fall and sin and death and hell, and even as you see it in your own life, you, you have to recognize that woven into God's words to Adam and Eve here is a promise that he will send forth a child born of the woman that all of his creation might be redeemed. So verse 18 of Romans 8, our, our sufferings, and because of this, our sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that actually is to be revealed to us and, and in us. Verse 19 says that all of creation's hope now is that the sons of God would be revealed. It's that they would, that creation would exist in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That, that line, that child, the children of Eve. Verse 23 says that our hope is that we would be adopted as sons, that we would find the redemption of our own broken, fallen, death-carrying bodies. So right now, our, our hope remains unseen, as Paul says there at the end of that section. But that doesn't mean that our hope is unknown. 
And we, it's not fully realized. You, you look around, you think of the gospel, you go, this isn't exactly what I thought the gospel would. I, I don't think this is really kind of the culmination of everything. Please, Lord, tell me that it is not. But, but what Paul says here is that we hope for something that we don't see, but that's not to say that we don't know it or that we can't name our hope. Later in chapter 8, Romans 8, verses 34 and 35, it says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who, who is to curse? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A, an angel with a flaming sword standing out the gates? No, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, even flaming ones? Romans 8, 38 and 39 picks up the same idea. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord reveals himself to the first man and woman and, and they ignore his words and the fall and the curse inevitably follow. When the Lord reveals himself to them again, even in the midst of judgment, he offers them hope that they now have the opportunity to embrace, to receive, to believe, or to reject in favor of, once again, their own wisdom, their own instincts, what seems good and delights their eyes. What I'm telling you is that the, the hope that we have in the midst of this fallen world is that God has revealed himself once again, that he has revealed himself really in the fullest revelation of Genesis 3.15, that, that he has put forward his son, Jesus Christ, whom John's gospel calls the word of God, that we might know him, that we might embrace him, that we might look to him alone, even in the midst of so much around us, and if we're honest, within us, that is broken. What's beautiful about this word that the Lord gives, though, is that this is no longer a word of decree that we must obey. Actually, this word is a person who, who has done all of the obeying. This word is a person whom we can know. Not just know about, but personally know. And, and by faith in his name, you are grafted into his very life. And his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And in that, the curse is undone. It's made untrue. It is unraveled before our very eyes. Will we heed God's revelation in the face of Jesus Christ? So, will you follow your own fallen instincts and perception, or will you heed the word of God as it has been revealed in one name only, Jesus Adam and Eve failed to heed God's word, but in Christ the word of God has fulfilled all righteousness and borne God's judgment on our behalf. So, at the, end of, at the end of this year, at the end of yourself, 
you can let even something like Genesis 3 drive you to joy in the face of a fallen world. Because though we experience the fall and all of its effects today, we can have hope that its unraveling is at hand because Christ took on the curse and he overcame it for us in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, which breathes new life into all of Adam and Eve's children by faith in his name. He has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we want to delight in your son. We want to have hope in his name. So often we look for application from texts that get so specific to our immediate needs, but what greater need do we have than to find hope in the midst of a fallen world? Or we look to ourselves and there is none. We look to ourselves and see nothing but reminders of the decay and destruction that we are all born to. But we look to Jesus and we see life in his name. He is the one who brings about restoration for all who trust in him. And so, Father, today we, we want to delight in him. And, and whatever, whatever that means, however that ends up working itself out in our lives, Lord, we just want to delight in your son, not in ourselves, not in any worldly wisdom. We, we want to look to him because it is only through him that we can have hope amidst the fall. Lord, For those here this morning who have never trusted in Christ, who have considered that to be probably even a waste of time because there are so many bigger, more pressing things in this world than putting your hope in an unseen man. Father, would you you draw them to yourself that they might not merely know truths about you, but that they would know you personally as you have revealed yourself to us fully and finally in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Draw praise from our lips, even now, because of him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.